This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Welcome to Coffee House Shots, with Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Fariz Nelson, and I'm joined by Katie Balls and Stephen Bush. Rishi Sunak is back on the airwaves, or close to it. He did an in-conversation with Paul Goodman from Conservative Home today. Katie, what did we learn? So we learned a few things. Um, you had, ultimately, the Prime Minister talking about small boats, saying that there will be no easy solutions. It will take a long time. You had also the Prime Minister trying to create a dividing line with Keir Starmer, in which he said 100% of women don't have penises, as opposed to 99.9, which was Keir Starmer's line recently. Or the, or at least the idea that it was up for debate, I think might be a fair way of putting it. Um, and, and generally, I think it was Rishi Sunak talking to the grassroots, so lots of the questions, I mean, he talked about the need for potentially more privatisation in the NHS in the sense of NHS relying on private sector more, but a lot of questions um, related to delivery, boats, and I think the fact almost he he is doing this so soon after a recent Con Home poll where his popularity had risen quite significantly is notable in the sense you, you do get the impression number 10 feels more confident and um, particularly fielding questions you don't know where, what exactly is coming from from the, uh, from the grassroots um, through this. Right. And Stephen, normally the trajectory for prime ministerial popularities is you start reasonably high and then it's a jagged path down, but it's usually down. With Rishi Sunak, he started very low. People didn't, we didn't win an election, basically lost even the Tory leadership election. So do we now see a trajectory where he becomes one of the first prime ministers in history to start low and then work his way up? Well, I think it's unlikely just because what political scientists call the costs of governing, i.e. every time you do something, you annoy someone, that still applies a bit. But I think there's an there's a fascinating kind of both an intratory and then a sort of... So basically, in 2022, two things happened at the end of the year. A bunch of people got very angry with Liz Truss and started telling pollsters they would vote Labour. Mm-hmm. They still are. A bunch of people got very angry with the Tory party. Well, I don't know how I'm going to vote. And those people have come home. And I think one of the things that we're seeing both in the country and the party is that um, Rishi Sunak being a pretty effective prime minister is reminding lots of conservatives within the party and outside of it, oh, actually, I like this guy. He's quite good at this. Yeah, he's quite good at the actual doing of the job. So I don't think we're going to see a complete inversion of the usual trend of, you know, you come in as high as you're ever going to be and you gradually decline. But I think in some ways his his stock, as it were, was artificially low in the autumn of last year. And we're now seeing a kind of more natural uh, return. But I suspect whatever happens uh, in terms of the battle between him and, and Keir Starmer, that we're probably at peak Rishi in absolute terms. But of course, mm-hmm. politics is primarily a relative thing, right? It doesn't matter if this is as popular as Rishi Sunak ever is. If Keir Starmer becomes more unpopular, then suddenly that's that's terrific for him. Of course, Katie, um, Labour spent a good chunk of last week trying to make Rishi Sunak unpopular by doing these attack adverts by saying that I think he personally believes that adults who are convicted of um, child sex offences should not go in jail. Is this a sign that Labour are worried that Sunak is more popular than the Tory party, where Keir Starmer, as far as I can work out, is less popular than the Labour party? 
I think it's exactly that. You had, I think they've been talking about trying different methods ahead of local elections for a while. So I think it was always natural. They would try a few different things. It's often talked about as a dry run in in terms of um, campaign tactics and also I I think there is a sense the Labour Party has not been aggressive enough in previous campaigns or at least not been aggressive in the right way which is partly this but ultimately those attack ads are trying to um, bring Rishi Sunak down and there is a sense I think both in the shadow cabinet and among Labour advisors that Rishi Sunak is their biggest problem right now, at least when you look at the Conservative Party. I had one Labour advisor basically say what you just said, uh, Fraser, which is <laughs> the issue is Rishi Sunak is pulling the Tories up. Keir Starmer, if you look at the polling at least, seems to be having the opposite effect. And therefore, it could be, as Stephen points out, that this is just a natural levelling after what happened with the Liz Truss uh, premiership. Um, but if that trajectory were to keep on going, <laughs> That's what really worries some people in Labour right now. And then in the shadow cabinet, I mean, I always thought it was interesting during the Tory leadership contest, because if you ever spoke to someone in Labour who perhaps wasn't your closest contact, they say, oh, we're not worried about Rishi Sunak at all. We're more worried about Penny Mordaunt. And I'd be interested in what Stephen thinks on that in the sense, I think there was something about Penny Mordaunt where not enough was known about her and she was probably a bit um, more left-leaning on social conservative issues and they thought that might cut through. But it slightly didn't wash with me because I just thought Rishi Sunak is someone who clearly could cause the Labour Party some problems in terms of his ratings. And I think we're now seeing now he's in position, you know, shadow cabinet ministers talking about the fact that he is often the best thing the Tories have. You look at all the poll ratings in terms of how do they basically attach Rishi Sunak with years of failed Tory government. Now, there's ways of doing it, but I think they're trying to make that link, which goes back to the attack adverts. Yeah, I mean, I think it's odd. So I, I, I was, I'm actually going to say something much less diplomatic about the, uh, oh, the one we're really worried about is Penny Morden. Is that reflects... The thing I think you should never put too much stock on is what people say they're scared of in the other party, because... Don't forget, most people in the other party don't know. Like most people in the Conservative Party don't know very much about the Labour Party. Most people in the Labour Party don't know very much about the Conservative Party. So I think lots of Labour people would be looking at Penny Morden and going, like, "Oh, you know, she speaks well. She's telegenic. She she seems a bit like she'll be difficult for us in the same ways as David Cameron. Why wouldn't they pick her?" You'd ask a Conservative MP that question, and they'd go, "Well, look, where can I begin?" And I think what we're now seeing is the Labour Party realising exactly that, that Rishi Sunak is the Conservative Party's best available asset. And in some ways, it's quite similar, I think, to lots of the stuff the Conservatives tried from about 2013 to 2015 onwards, right, where they knew that the Labour Party had this big vulnerability called Ed Miliband, but they kind of kept trying to find ways to litigate it. And some of them didn't work. And eventually they hit on one in the shape of the SNP that worked uh, very effectively. The Labour Party know that they have a big vulnerability called Rishi Sunak, but Rishi Sunak has a big vulnerability called the rest of the Conservative Party. And they're going to keep trying to find ways to hit that. Now, um, the thing is, is there's no there's no guarantee that they eventually will find the, the SNP poster equivalent. They might just keep kind of going, oh, is it this? Is it that? Is it this? Is this the bit where the ice is thin? And they never actually find the way to sort of smash that currently quite sturdy wall between Rishi Sunak's approval ratings and the Conservative Party's. Ditto, of course, what we will start to see in reverse is the the Conservative Party trying to do the, hey, yeah, I, I know you think it's time for a change, but have you noticed 
who the Labour Labour Party leader is. And again, there is no guarantee. You know, ju- just just because political parties have found a way of doing that in the past doesn't mean either party will find a way to break through. But that is one of the reasons why this is going to be a very nasty. Um, however many months it is in British politics, because for very different reasons, both parties are highly incentivised to go for the other party's leader. Yeah, and I think number 10 would love to have a presidential-style election, whereas if you uh, just look at approval ratings but also speak to a few people in Labour, there's much more concerns about doing that from the Labour side with Keir Starmer front and centre. Um, Stephen, I was trying to wonder whether it's unfair right now to expect the Labour Party of much of an agenda. I mean, the criticism people make is that um, that Starmer, he's done a good job in vanquishing Corbynism. He's won dozens of these um, selection candidate battles. We don't see much about them in the press, but behind the scenes, we have seen uh, no return at all of, of Corbynism. So he is tightening his party up in the same way that Tony Blair had done. But then again, I think there's a reasonable chance we're about a year away from a general election. I think May 24 is plausible. Therefore, a year before, the, you know, in April 96, we did have, um, we had Jack Straw, we had David Blunkett, we had um, Robin Cook had given his magisterial um, evisceration of the Tories after the um, Arms to Iraq report. We had tough on crime, tough of causes of crime. We had education, education, education. A lot of the elements of the Tony Blair agenda were in place. Now, Blair had a big old lead. I think he had, I think he was 40 points ahead at one point of the Tories. It seems to me, though, as if Blair had built that lead in a way that Keir Starmer has built the lead that he's got now. I mean, is that fair? Are there aspects of the Labour agenda which I might be missing because I'm not a natural Labour supporter? Well, I think, essentially, the crucial difference is is that Tony Blair didn't have to be his own Neil Kinnock, right? He, 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 hadn't, he didn't have to spend a lot of time fighting the left of the party. They came pre-beaten. And therefore, he... Yeah, and he also, in many ways, Tony Blair was triangulating not between the public, but between the Labour... Where he wanted to be, where he felt correctly, as it turned out, the public were, and where the Labour Party wanted to go. Whereas Keir Starmer, as well as inheriting a Labour Party in a much worse state, I think... What you are, I think what people are correctly detecting when they go, there is no agenda here, is broadly speaking, the big agenda of Blairism was the Thatcher major economic model works, let's have some more redistribution on top of it. Mm. What is the big view, you know, the kind of, you know, not the sort of individual policy stuff, but if you, if you were asked to describe, okay, what is the insight that the Labour Party has about its economic model, why it's been losing, what it's doing differently... I think we'd all go something mumble mumble. Uh, their leader isn't frightening to swing voters anymore, which is obviously a huge, yeah, massive, a huge shift, mm. right? Um, but equally, one of the reasons why people think Keir Starmer is shifty is he's been incredibly shifty. Which you can you can argue, I think rightly, then he would not have been able to achieve the transformation in the Labour Party he had done mm-hmm. without being incredibly shifty. But then you go, but isn't there a but isn't that exactly the reason why Neil Kinnock didn't win, that he was not able to convince the country that that he was sincere in his journey? And I think that is why it's not so much about the individual policies, of which I think in some ways they have lots of kind of trivial sort of, you know, we would change X procurement rule in order to secure Y thing. But that big sense of what you know, what does the Labour Party think about the direction of the country? One of the reasons why that is 
absent is broadly speaking we have a Miliband era you know kind of positioning politics lots of ways with a leader who intuits and he can't win from that position and that leads to this vagueness and lack of of certainty about where the Labour Party stands I think. Katie, the Tories are quite fond of um, sharing uh, videos of Keir Starmer changing his mind on this, that and the other. You know, He started off saying that he was all for freedom of movement and then he turned against it, etc, etc. But each of these directions, obviously these are from the left to the right, but you could also argue that they're all to the more electable side of, of politics. So perhaps while you might say that Keir Starmer flip-flops, he's actually moving towards a more electable position and perhaps he's midway through the journey, so he could be surprising us uh, with some decent policies. I think I, I was actually wrong there to mention education, education, education. I think that was a October 96 speech that Blair made. So maybe October this year, the Labour Party conference, is when we would expect to see a Labour mission. Maybe it's unreasonable to expect one right now. Yeah, I mean, I think to your point earlier, we have heard five missions being set out in theory, and, and I think... The problem is you've had a week where because the attack has been quite divisive in the Labour Party, lots of Labour commentators or, or journalists just taking briefings from figures in Labour have said, where's the positive vision? We need to get that out there. And someone was saying, you know, I had one figure say to me, uh, he works in Labour, oh, Keir Starmer needs to give a speech saying what he means. Mm. And I, I did think there's been, I'm looking at Stephen right now as he puts his head in his hands um, because it's not a video podcast. <laughs> but... <laughs> He has given quite a few speeches. And massive articles. We, we have had a, a ve- we've had a few. We had a very long essay at one point, which is supposed to tell us what Starmerism was. There was recently a very long piece in the New Statesman. Uh, we have had multiple speeches. We've had various mission speeches, and I think it, it's not unfair to say it's not exactly lit up the agenda. And it goes back to the point of if you. If you think the Labour lead, and I do think Keir Starmer has done a lot to detoxify the Labour Party, I think that's undeniable. But when the polls really started to change, was more down to Tory incompetence, might even be kind, um, psychodrama, economic breakdown. You know, we can go various terms, and therefore, when people started saying, "Oh, what we need to do is say more," about what we're going to do, it's clearly the hardest stage for Keir Starmer. So we may get more. Um, but the missions are a device of even the shadow cabinet because there are five missions and lots of shadow cabinet ministers uh, feel that, you know, if their brief's not included, they're now on the sidelines, they don't have things to do. We're expecting a Labour reshuffle probably quite soon after the local elections. We might want to, again, see that Keir Starmer is ruthless, but political management will be a big factor on that. So I think that it it does point to actually how... How, yes, we may get more speeches, but do we think they're going to have more impact if none of the speeches really before have done? Um, and I think that's one of the problems for him. Stephen, we can see when Blair did his reshuffles taking the party in a more Blairite direction, what would a more Starmerite direction look like? If there is going to be a reshuffle after next month's local elections, who might be, be tipped for promotion? And, and, what would, and if so, I'm trying, trying to work out if we were to look for a direction, what would we be looking for? Well, I think, obviously, the... The weird difference, of course, is in opposition, Tony Blair couldn't pick his shadow cabinet. He could only move people around because they had shadow cabinet elections. So all of everything Blair did was about direction. You know, it was about going, OK, I've been given these components by the parliamentary party. Where do I, you know, where do I put my biggest hitters? Whereas with Keir Starmer, the, the two places where he feels most acutely that Labour ought to be making more runs and they aren't are DEFRA, obviously all of these problems with sewage, you know, water privatisation, as 
basically turned out to be a bit of a disaster, and then crime and uh, crime and antisocial behaviour. So the argument playing itself out in Keir Starmer's circle is, okay, how do you get that change? On the one hand, Yvette Cooper's hugely respected, huge media following. Her coming back to the Shadow Cabinet was a real sign that Labour were, you know, back in business, serious party on the way in. On the other, there's a lot of frustration in the leader's office that they feel she's not as robust as they would like to be on crime and immigration. You talk to people in the Shadow Home team and they go, well, how on earth can we be robust when Shadow Treasury won't give us any money to be robust? Uh, so some people say, oh, well, what you do is you move a vet, you bring in someone who will you know, do the kind of, you know, will basically do the kind of thing we saw in those posters. A West uh, Streeting? Yeah, some, yeah, someone kind of quite, uh, yeah, someone, yeah, West Streeting. You know, some people saying, well, look, Emily Thornberry's like shown she's willing to stand up the line, let's bring her in as Shadow Justice. So you have the benefit of a vet, but you have someone who will do the kind of the hard attack stuff. And then, yeah, there are lots of arguments. So where, what, what do you do with DEFRA? Part of the problem, of course, is that broadly speaking, uh, there aren't a great number of Labour MPs who have a particularly deep engagement or interest in rural affairs. But in some ways, I think that answer shows the problem, which is that those are all kind of granular policy answers for what they want to be. But there isn't really a Starmerite view of the world. You know, there isn't a kind of, oh, you know, a Starmerite is someone who thinks X thing about public services or Y thing about the economy. It's broadly speaking, someone, you know, a quite managerial opposition leader going, oh, I would like to put people who I think are going to do a better job of attacking the government and a better job of sharpening my alternative, which, you know, defenders of Keir Starmer and Labour Party will go, well, this will work fine if he gets into Downing Street. But broadly speaking, one of the reasons why I put my head in my hands at the idea of yet another speech is broadly speaking, right, the reason why they don't have any definition I mean, also partly a lot of people in the shadow cabinet need to grow up a bit. Oh, I'm not included in my five missions. Well, yeah, that's called being in government. Like, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, the, the culture secretary feels particularly like they're that important to Rishi Sunak's re-elect afterwards, you know. But prioritisation, which is the thing that Keir Starmer has noticeably not yet done, right? At no point has he said, look, my government cares about crime, therefore we're going to spend more money on fighting crime and we're going to spend less money in DCMS, less money here, less money there. That kind of, that here's what I'm about moment hasn't come. But I think it just feels to me unlikely that it's ever going to happen because it's not like there was ever a speech where Tony Blair explicitly went, hey, Thatcherism, I like it and I'm going to keep it. But we all kind of knew by this point mm. and that was sort of where he was at. And I just think if, if the Starmer project was going to produce that moment of clarity, it would surely have happened by now. And Katie, um, one of the and Katie, there's two shadow cabinet members I'm particularly impressed by: West Streeting, because I think he's quite a reform-minded health secretary, and John Ashworth, who I think has been very good critiquing the failure of welfare reform in the Tory Party. But I'm struggling if it, move either of those two from their jobs, and I wonder if the reform agenda, such as it is, just dies in Labour. I mean, is there anybody else in the whole of a Labour front bench who would be? keen on welfare reform in the way that John Ashworth is, or keen on them sort of taking on the NHS establishment as West Streeting seems to be. Those two seem to be relatively lonely in their respective missions. So I think it's an interesting one. I I mean, I think Jonathan Ashworth has uh, Lisa Nandy as a political ally. So you have a situation where was she to move off levelling up, Mm. perhaps as someone who actually would be quite keen to push in in their department. She's got a book coming out as well, hasn't she? She does. Off her manifesto, yeah. Yeah, and and I also think as a former leadership candidate and somebody who's been around for some time, has a confidence in herself. And both Wes Streeting and Jonathan Ashford have been 
around a while and therefore I think they're a bit more confident about standing up to parts of the party and being less less concerned about a potential backlash you have Bridget Phillipson who lots of people rate I think one of the problems has been you go back to the treasury the fact that she's been talking for a long time about childcare reform um, and kept giving all these speeches spoke to spectator about it but never was able to announce a specific policy then the budget comes along and Jeremy Hunt just announces you know quite a comprehensive package now Labour still think they'll be able to go a bit further by the time the next election but I think there is there are some things that if you if you have to have a reform agenda but you don't have much money behind it now of course there are ways to reform about spending but it does limit you and for example you know you speak to figures in the shadow cabinet and the Labour Party and they say you know where's streeting has spent a lot of money there, there is an annoyance they think that that where streeting has announced more things than have actually been signed off and they and they fear by the time the election the Conservatives can throw some of these things back such as the idea of nationalizing GPs and say well how are you paying for this so even with the ones making a splash and their constant briefing saying if you don't get headlines and make a splash you might get sacked but the ones who are doing so and then in trouble for um going too far and spending money they don't have Stephen, the bookmakers say there is a 30 percent chance of a tory government at the next election is that figure too low or too high feels about right to me right and then essentially assuming nothing changes because something would have to change right then the Prime Minister has done a really good job of convincing people who were turned off by the Tories but hadn't yet moved to Labour to come back. But almost by definition, voters who have made that final journey are in a different place. Uh, so assuming then nothing happens politically to shift that calculation, assuming that the various global crises which the government are facing continues to stay, and assuming that ultimately the fact that it's been 13 years the various sort of forces internally sort of holding the prime minister down like the old man in the sea continue to be in present. I think that gets you. So, yeah, it feels to me about right, right? 30% chance it's a 2010 style hung parliament, Labour clearly in the box seat. 30% chance then it's a decisive Labour victory. 30% chance the Conservatives win again in some way. That feels right to me. Stephen and Gatie, thanks very much indeed. Now, we're going to be having a live coffee house shots in Westminster a couple of days after the coronation to discuss the aftermath of the local election results, the new king and much more. So do join us if you can. That's Wednesday the 10th of May from 6.30pm at the Manual Centre in Westminster. You can find out more on spectator.co.uk forward slash coronation. Thanks for listening and thanks to Natasha Faroz who produced the podcast. <laughs>